Good morning. My title this morning, as always, How to Ruin a Dinner Party. And I'm going to tell you a story. I know that I'm pressing on to senility, but I actually remember that I've told you this story before. But it's the best illustration I can think of of how to ruin dinner. Uh, we were uh, having a, a group of people over. Some of you may have been there. I can't remember who was there at that particular occasion. But Jeanette had fixed this huge bowl of uh, of taco salad. So it's one of those meals where, folks, the meal is in the bowl. It's the name of the game. One bowl, the meal. There was this pesky fly that was buzzing around, and it was driving me nuts. And I decided that I could actually get that fly in midair. I did. He went right smack in the middle of the salad. And I have to tell you, Jeanette, she scooped around there. I mean, you know, no government agency would have condemned that salad. It was safe. But the meal was over so far as that salad was concerned. Oh, I did a beautiful job of ruining that meal. Well, that's kind of what happened uh, as you read the story of our Lord Jesus at Passover. Think about this. As, as a time of, of uh, fellowship, of joy, of celebration, of anticipation. It, it was sort of like uh, what we would experience at Thanksgiving. Family, friends, loved ones around the table, great time of fellowship. And in the midst of that, Jesus drops the bomb. One of you is going to betray me. I mean, think of the way, in, how would you do a better job of killing the mood than to make that statement, and Jesus did. Jesus had spoken earlier of his death, chapter 8, verse 31, he said he would die. Chapter 9, verse 31, he said he would die. Chapter uh, uh, 10, in verses 32 through 34, he speaks of his death. And in chapter 14, he says that when Mary was anointing him, she was anointing him for his burial. It isn't that he hadn't spoken about his death before. But the one thing that he had not yet revealed was that it was one of his disciples that would do it. One of those sitting at the table, sharing in that festive meal, was going to betray their Lord Jesus. Well, you know, that set the disciples off into all kinds of uh, discussions and debates. Who was the greatest? Who it was that might be the one who would betray? And actually, Luke's account goes a fair bit farther than uh, Matthew and Mark uh, do, but we all know it was chaos from that point on. Actually, when we look at this event, you, you look at something that as important as it is, is really pretty brief, is it not? You look at this account. This is really a pretty concise account. You might expect a more embellishment. I might as well forewarn you, this sounds like a fairly innocuous message, but I can almost guarantee you, maybe not amongst you, but amongst uh, some readers, I'm going to make a fair number of people unhappy with me about what I've got to say about this text. 
because a lot is made or not made of our Lord's Supper that needs to be corrected. And so, uh, you know, that's one of the beauties of knowing that you're going to step off the scene is you can drop the bomb and hit the door. So here I go. This is important to us. We observe the Lord's Supper every single week, and it is a critical part of what we do on Sunday morning. This text has three main sections. You'll notice I dropped the fourth section, and I opted to shorten our text and to stay just with the uh, events there at the table of the upper room, and then the next verses will be Jesus heading for the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane, and I chose to leave those pieces together geographically. So we've got three sections. Preparation for the celebration in verses 12 through 16. Uh, revelation regarding the betrayer in verses 14 through 20, or 17 through 21, and the celebration of the new covenant uh, in verses 22 through 25. Now, there is a little chronological hitch here, which I will mention to you, and I'm not going to get diverted into a lengthy attempt. And the reality is I could uh, I could propose my best solution, and you may or may not buy it. But let me just mention to you, when you read about the events that we have in our text, whether it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, it is spoken of in the frame of reference that it is the day on which the Passover lamb will be sacrificed, right? When you come to John's gospel, remember that that is event, an event that is yet future. And so you see people concerned where Jesus is at the cross and people don't want to defile themselves or he's in his trial. They don't want to defile themselves so that they can eat the Passover. So it looks as though John is seeing the Passover as 24 hours later than the synoptics do. And and so uh, some would say that there was the celebration of Passover a day early. That has some appeal. And in particular, it has some appeal if Judas is to comply with the specifications that he's that Jesus is not to be arrested during Passover. If Jesus is actually bumping that ahead a day, then Judas could actually comply with the specifications that were set forth uh, for him. We also have to take into account the fact that the Jewish day begins at 6 p.m. at night. And so there have been some schemes laid out which would seemingly resolve the problem by, by having the day start at the, at the proper time, and all of that's worked out. I'm going to set that aside. You can read the commentaries and, and go there all you want. I want to give you some things to keep in mind. One, Passover then, as Passover today, is actually celebrated on two days. And so it's not, it's not a shock for us to have some discussion about is it this day or that day. There was, there is actually still a difference amongst some as to when that ought to be observed. Second, it's important for the Lord Jesus to die at the right time. In my opinion, it's more important for him to die at the right time as the Passover lamb than it is to eat the Passover meal at the right time. So I'm not going to get nearly as, as worked up about 
the timing of the meal as I am the timing of his actual death. I am convinced there is a solution. And it may be one that we only know in eternity. I don't get all hung up about problems like this, although liberals will jump all over it because they would love to make something of it. I have one last thing to say on that point. The gospel writers were aware of each other's writings. They did not have a problem with this. Is that not right? I mean, look, folks, you know, I realize that there's a scheme and and there's even a debate as to who wrote first. But the reality is, whoever wrote first, the other guys must have looked at what he wrote when they wrote what they wrote. So surely somebody is not going to say, oh, it doesn't matter what he said. You know, I know I'm going to say it differently. I'm going to contradict him. It was no problem in their mind. So let's look at it like they did. If it isn't a problem to them, then probably it ought not to be a fetish for me. Okay, preparations for the Passover. The first main paragraph in our text, verses 12 through 16. Here's a couple some observations for you. Interestingly, Matthew is the shortest account. Now, I, I, I beat on this drum from time to time to continue to point out to you that those who look at Mark as somehow the, the second class, less detailed, pass over the detail kind of text, you know, it's Matthew that gives the brief account. Interestingly, Matthew does not tell us about the man carrying, mention the man carrying the water who's going to meet the two. He says to the disciples, picking up where they go into the house and, and they speak to the owner, that's where Matthew picks up. It's it's not something that's not true. He just isn't interested in it. It's Matthew that has less detail than Mark uh, and Luke. Mark and Luke are nearly identical. Usually it's Matthew and Mark who are so identical. Now it's Mark and Luke in this particular portion. But here's the exception. It's Luke who tells us who the two are, Peter and John. Only text that gives us that information. The question is raised, where should they eat and, or prepare for and eat the Passover? And I just want to pause there for a moment and say, no one is as interested in the answer to that question as Judas. He's the guy who has to get Jesus off to the side so that he can be secretly arrested and put to death. So he needs to know his ears must be flapping at this point in time. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised. The text says the disciples asked him, where should the Passover be prepared? It wouldn't shock me if Judas was the guy who first asked the question. A seemingly harmless question, but he really needs to know. Judas has determined at the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary, he's going to betray Jesus. Sometime after that, he makes the, he, he makes the actual agreement with the Jewish religious leaders that he's going to hand Jesus over. And now he must look for a time when it is not during the feast, when there is privacy and this won't create a fear amongst the people. He needs to know where Jesus will be in private. 
that is not the actual time of Passover. So for him to know the place where Jesus is going to observe this meal with his small group of friends, and I might also add, other people are going to be making preparations for Passover in their homes. This is not a time for crowds to gather. Would you agree? Everybody's home, like Christmas Eve or whatever it is. Nobody's out there uh, in, in, the, in the throngs. They are in some kind of private gathering. It's the perfect time. If Judas can pull this off, then Judas can fulfill his agreement, make his money. Here are the Passover preparations that are given to us. The disciples ask Jesus when or where, I should say, to prepare for the Passover. Peter and John are dispersed, and they are to meet a man who is carrying water. I should say, that's not right. A man is to meet them who is carrying water. Two things are interesting about that. One, men don't generally carry water. You go anywhere in the world, water buckets are on female heads. That's unusual, so this guy's going to stand out. But this guy's going to find them. Now, it's my personal opinion, and it's only worth that. It's my personal opinion that there are a couple of reasons for Peter and John. One, those two men are most devoted to Jesus. Would you not agree? Here's John leaning on Jesus' breast. Here's Peter pulling out his sword, lopping off ears. These guys are committed. Now, they may have their failings, but they're committed to Jesus. They're not going to rat him out. The other is, I think they're the most visible disciples. I think that the man who's carrying the water is watching for them. If anybody but Peter and John came, I do not believe he would have led them where he did. I believe that he is looking for them, he meets them, and he then leads them to this unspecified place where the owner, who is not named, is going to take them to a room, the location of which is not given. Does this sound like cloak and dagger stuff to you? It is. That's exactly the point. Jesus has very carefully orchestrated these events so that at that moment when Judas most would have wanted to hand Jesus over, he has the least amount of information and his hands, so to speak, are tied. He cannot interfere with this private gathering of the disciples. So the preparations are made by the two men, Peter and John, and we are told everything happened just as Jesus said. Surprise. I mean, isn't that what we anticipate? And what we see again in the scriptures is Jesus is the one who is in control, not Judas, not the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus is not a victim. He is the victor. He is the one who is setting the scene. He will make his appearance for Judas and the, and, and the throng at his time. Not theirs. At his time. Everything is going about just exactly as he has planned and purposed. So then we come to the next section. The meal's been prepared. Now all 12 are there with the Lord Jesus in this uh, upper room. And uh, Jesus is going to drop the proverbial bomb in the midst of the meal. Very interesting in this. 
Now, Mark decides to be brief and not to go into as much detail. It's interesting to me how seldom Judas is mentioned in the Gospels. Matthew, I think Mark and Luke, maybe four times each. John is eight. But if you look at the actual focus, John is even more uh, emphatic in terms of, of the, the, the pointing of the finger toward Judas and calling attention to him when he didn't have to. John chapter 6, when Jesus, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, are you guys going to leave me too? And then he, he goes on and, and, and basically he says, now one of you is a betrayer. And, and it's clear, Jesus calls attention to Judas, especially in, in the Gospel of John. In Matthew and Mark, the revelation is laid out of the betrayer, is laid out actually before the, the Lord's Supper is described in the verses which follow. Interestingly, in Luke's Gospel, and this is one of the reasons I did not hand out a handout with all the text beside, I've got my own private copy, I admit, but... The problem is that with Luke, you have to take pieces of it and and rearrange them because Luke has the revelation right after the Lord's Supper when the Lord has passed out the cup. And so I, I don't know but what Jesus has actually revealed this several times during the meal. But whatever, in Matthew and Mark, the revelation comes first, then the meal is described in their accounts. John doesn't describe the meal. He doesn't describe the actual Lord's Supper. This is my body. Uh, this is my blood. He doesn't do that. Well, not unless you go back to John chapter 6. And, and in that sense, John has already kind of pre-told the story in the context of those who are saying, give us this bread forevermore. Jesus is saying, you know, Moses didn't give you the bread. God did. And, and my flesh is true bread and my, uh, blood is, is true drink. And the people are saying, ho, ho, that's too much for me. I'm not going down that trail. Well, that's communion, folks. That's what communion is about. But it's in John chapter six, not in John chapter 13. But John 13 has a whole lot of detail that we don't get elsewhere, right? starts out with the great love of our Lord Jesus for his disciples and the fact that Jesus knew exactly that it was time and he knew what was coming. Then there's the washing of feet, that job which nobody else seemed to want. Jesus does. Peter, of course, says, not washing my feet. And uh, then he wants a bath. Uh, That's Peter. Well, there's a lot of detail that's there. And in particular, again, as I say, a lot of detail regarding... Judas, no question there, that, but what Judas knows, and he knows that Jesus knows. In Matthew, in the, in the last part of the account when it comes to the, the betrayer, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 25, it says, And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Or, paraphrased, oh, yes, you are. (laughs) It's Judas. He knows. He knows. Jesus knows. And John makes that even more clear, as I've already said. When you think about the words that Jesus speaks, 
Even the, the sort of mellowed out words that we get in Mark, think about that. Woe to that man. Jesus reveals there will be a betrayer. He reveals in Mark that it will be one of those eating with him. Now, I don't know that they used forks, but I'll bet you if they did, every fork hit the plate about the time that Jesus, and probably some coughing and sputtering going on too, at the time Jesus makes the revelation and then says, woe to that man. Boy, if you were Judas, wouldn't you flinch at that? And then for him to go on to say, better if that person had never been born. Boy, that is sobering stuff. Sobering stuff. But in my mind, not quite as chilling as John's. John's really lays it out. And, and I call this a counter-communion. I don't know what you want to call it, but this is really, it's kind of spooky. And it, it, it ought to send chills up and down our spine. Here's the account in John. Jesus has made it clear that one's going to betray him. It's clear to us it's going to be Judas. And then remember when Jesus says in, in, in Matthew and Mark, it's the one who's going to dip his, his uh, uh, food in the dish with me. In John, Jesus says, the one for whom I dip the bread and to whom I hand it. That's the one. Now think about this. Here is, let's call it a piece of bread. I don't know what it was, but it must have been something like that. A piece of bread. Jesus dips that bread, holds it to Judas. Now think about that in one moment in time. Whether or not you take that piece of bread is huge. Is it not? Huge. If you take that bread, you have accepted your role and confirmed it and basically said, I am the betrayer. Judas reaches out and takes it, and the text tells us in John, immediately Satan entered into him. Boy, that is scary stuff. And then Jesus, you remember, dismisses him and says, what you do, do quickly. You're dismissed, Judas. Go quickly. The disciples are in mental la-la land. Now, some of that is because Jesus has dropped the bomb. Some of it is because they're too busy arguing about who's the greatest. And all of the stuff that's going on, but they don't understand. Judas is the one. He's not going out to buy food like they might have thought. He's not going out to give a gift to the poor like they might have hoped. Whatever you do, do quickly. And John gives us these cryptic words. And it was night. Boy, was it ever. Was it ever. Especially for Judas. The betrayer is revealed. What's the outcome of all this? The disciples are in a mental tailspin. The disciples are absolutely frosted, so to speak. They, they, they just can't get their mental arms around what's going on. So they're arguing about who's the greatest and whatever. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus has to give a little lesson about servanthood and, 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 and all of that. My point is, in all of that, all of this is by divine design. This is not a time for disciples to understand what God is doing. Is it? 
They don't need to know. They shouldn't know at this point in time what's going to happen. Part of it is because they need to forsake Jesus and flee because that's part of his plan. He's going to say it next, but it's part of his plan. So all of this is bringing about what our Lord Jesus has purposed. Judas is exposed as the betrayer, at least so far as Judas is concerned. He knows. Jesus knows. <laughs> and he's afraid the disciples know or will. Now, remember, Jesus has just done this act which has clearly designated him as the betrayer. Disciples are off again in their own mental stuff, and they don't really perceive it. But when Jesus dismisses Judas and says, go do what you've got to do, Judas has no idea what the conversation is from that moment on. And if you were Judas, what would you fear it was? Oh, by the way, boys, the guy who just left us is the betrayer. Now, if they had, I think Peter would have run him down and it would have been over. But that's another story. So here he is, in his mind, he is he is cooked. He is finished. He is exposed. There's only one thing he can do, and that is he must turn Jesus in now and bring about his death because he'll never go back to that, that group of guys again. He'll never face Jesus in that way. He'll never face those disciples again. He dare not. In his mind, one more thing. Judas knows where Jesus will be when he leaves that room. He didn't know where Jesus would be for the meal. He knows where Jesus will be after the meal. John chapter 18, first three verses and following. It says, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane as he was accustomed to do. Judas had been there. I'm sure they'd spent the night there a number of times. Judas knew. He knew that's where Jesus would be. He knew that's where he would bring about the arrest of our Lord. And surely as we read on, that is exactly the case. Now, I have called this the Passover celebration. Actually, I was going to correct that. And and I went to uh, look at the Net Bible, and I found out some, a very interesting thing. When you look at the first verses, 17 on down through verse 21, actually, I think it's verse 14, isn't it? 12, verse, down to verse 21. If you look at those in the Net Bible, this is called the Passover. When you come to these verses, which describe the bread and the wine, it is called, David, the Lord's yes, the Lord's Supper. Isn't it interesting that they distinguish what happens here from Passover? I think it's a critical distinction that we dare not overlook. And here's where I could make certain people unhappy. Not probably anybody here, but surely elsewhere. Note the brevity of the accounts of the Lord's Supper. John doesn't even include the actual event itself. Get this, in that brief account, A, focus is not on the past, it is on the future. Is that not right? There is no reference to the past. Now that's critical in a minute, you'll see. The focus is on something new. 
not on something old or traditional. All right, now here comes the bomb. There is no mention of a Seder. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I could ask, how many people have attended a Seder? Well, we've had in our early days, (laughs) all right, in our early days as a church, we actually, I think, had one actually done on a Sunday for our body and one later. Here's the problem with the Seder. Almost nothing in the Seder comes out of the Old Testament. Virtually nothing. It all comes out of the Mishnah, the oral tradition of Judaism put in written form. It does not come out of the Bible. When you look, I looked it up on on Wikipedia, you look up all these things and the order in which they're taken and whatever, none of that's in the Bible, folks. None of that's in the Bible. Virtually. A little bit, maybe there's bitter things, but that's about it. Why is it then that people think there's something so special about turning communion into a Seder when Jesus didn't? Is that is that a, a valid thing? It seems to me that what you have to say is, Jesus came there, it was Passover, but he converts Passover to the Lord's Supper. In the Passover, you sacrificed a lamb, and you took that lamb's blood, and you put it on the, in the first instance, on the, on the post, but you used that blood uh, in, in a sacrificial way, and then you ate the lamb. <laughs> Jesus says to them, I am the lamb. You eat my body. So Jesus is, in effect, setting aside the Old Testament Passover in that sense, and he's saying it's no longer a lamb that is sacrificed and, and, and its body eaten. It is me who is sacrificed. My blood is shed, and my body is partaken of in this communion activity. So the blood symbolizes the blood that I have shed. It is the blood of the new covenant, not the blood of the old covenant. And that's what you see. You see the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And virtually, the the, the Passover in the sense that people would like to remember it is marginalized. And the reason is the old has been replaced by the new. It would be like tearing the book of Hebrews out and saying, as a matter of fact, remember Jesus says once, the old is better than the new? Well, it isn't. The new covenant is vastly better than the old, and that's why the writer to the Hebrews spends so much time making that point. So all I'm saying is this. Don't come to a celebration where you come through all of these ritual things that are not in the Bible as though it was better This is better. That's what the text tells us. And that's what all of the New Testament underscores. Okay, I got out of my high horse and and now I can ride on. Utterly new. And this becomes, the meaning of this becomes evident in the New Testament. It is not obvious to the disciples. Would you not agree with me? Man, Peter and John and the rest of the guys, their eyeballs are rolling. What is this? 
They know what to expect, but they don't get it. It's only the New Testament. Now, let me just run you through a few things in your next slide. Uh, here's one I didn't put in because I didn't have room. And it's not the New Testament. Isn't it interesting when you come to Melchizedek in Genesis 14 that he brings to Abraham bread and wine? I don't know where to go with that. It's just interesting to me. Isn't it interesting when you read in Luke chapter 7, in verses 28 and verse uh, uh, 33, it says, John the Baptist was a man who did not eat bread or wine. It also makes the point that John was the greatest men in all of the Old Testament, but it distinguishes him as an Old Testament saint from a New Testament saint. I just find it interesting. No bread, no wine for John. John chapter 6. Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. If that is not pointing us to this event, I don't know what is. We must partake of our Lord Jesus as the Passover sacrifice. The one who has now died in our place that we may live. And his blood institutes a new covenant, not a covenant of works, but a covenant of salvation by faith alone, based on the work of the Lord Jesus. Now we come to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Folks, I don't think that's just eating a meal. I think once they understood what this event was about, they just couldn't get enough of it. And they celebrated it over and over and over. In the beginning, they celebrated it daily. I do not see anywhere in the New Testament where it isn't at least weekly. This is critical stuff. And the early church got it. Acts chapter 20, they gathered together to break bread. Now, I know people have said, I heard it in seminary, well, you know, it's a matter, some did it daily, some did it weekly, we can do it monthly, quarterly, annually. Not not the way I read my New Testament. And Jesus said, I know it's Luke, present tense, this be doing in remembrance of me. That makes it sound like this is something we ought to be doing with a, a degree of frequency that matches what we see in the New Testament. Here's an interesting text, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's this man living with his father's wife. And Paul brings up the Passover imagery to apply it because this was not just the day in which the Passover lamb was to be uh, killed and eaten. It was the day in which you started the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Remember, you searched the house and whatever and you looked for any leaven and, and so on. That goes on for a week. Paul says... Christ, our Passover, that's pretty clear, has been sacrificed. So let us throw out the leaven. Let's start the feast of unleavened bread and let's get rid of the leaven of sin because Christ has died. That's the use and the interpretation Paul makes of it in that context. First Corinthians 10, the issue now is idolatry. 
And there were some who were, who were going off, as I understand the text, they were going off and they were not just eating meats that they bought in the supermarket that somehow had idolatry associated. They were going to the idol rituals and participating and then they'd go to church and go through the Lord's Supper. And our Lord Jesus says, you sit at that table, you have fellowship with demons. You're partaking of something that's bigger than that. Then when you come to 1 Corinthians 11, you remember, he says, when you gather together, you're not gathering together to eat the Lord's Supper. Here's what I believe happened. In the New Testament, the Lord's Supper was a part of a meal. I think it's unfortunate that it's not a part of a meal here. I think it's unfortunate. I'm not sure about the solution. I think it's unfortunate. Because when we come to the Lord's Supper, our kids look at this and they think it's snacks. I've even heard kids say, when do we have the snacks? The Lord's Supper is no snack. It is a feast, my friend. And Jesus said, this is only a small sample of what's coming in heaven. And heaven is a feast. So it isn't just some little tidbit that we participate in. It's a piece of a large meal because it symbolizes what's coming ahead. And that is the great feast and celebration that comes in heaven. But they had made it into something else. It had become a potluck dinner where the big object was what they got out of it in terms of food. And therefore, they came together and they pigged out, apparently before the poor could get there from their work. And so they got drunk and fat, and the poor people got left out. And Paul says, because of this, some of you are sick and some sleep, because we have not adequately discerned the body of our Lord. Now, I personally understand that in two ways. One, we have not discerned the majesty and the greatness of our Lord himself. Secondly, we have not observed the majesty and the greatness of our Lord in his body, the church. And therefore, it's a very serious matter if we make communion an add-on rather than the center attraction we got trouble. Okay, here comes my conclusion. For those dedicated and devoted to the celebration of the Seder, read your New Testament, friends. Read your New Testament and do what's in the Bible. And don't make something more of an event that is really more past and prophetic than its fulfillment. The New Covenant and the Lord's table. That's my word of caution. And a lot of Christians go and, they, and they'll come back with glowing reports as though somehow they've been to some superior observance. I don't read that in my Bible. For those who do not make the Lord's Supper a central and regular part of their worship, I came out of that tradition. Once a month, dinner had to wait because they tacked on communion to the sermon. It was an add-on. But it was not the central focus. And to those people, I would say, look at the New Testament. The Lord's Supper is the central unifying theme of the gospel and of the meeting of the church, as I understand it. It's critical 
that we view and practice it in that way. Now, for those of us who regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, a couple of comments. One, this is but a sample of things to come. Is it not? Jesus keeps saying it twice in Luke, he says it. I will not eat of this, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it in the kingdom. Folks, this is nothing compared to what's coming. This is a sampler in that sense. Because something vastly greater is coming over and over again. This great feast, this gathering around the table, there is something about it that just has special meaning and should. Think of the Lord's table as a potluck for a moment. What do you bring into dinner? What do you bring into dinner? If this meeting where we gather around the Lord's Supper is so important, then we ought to be bringing things to that table which are worthy of him, not tidbits, not small afterthoughts. And I speak to myself as well as everybody else. And I speak to those who speak and those who don't, men, women, men who remain silent. What are we bringing? It's an important table. We ought to be more intent on what we give than we are. Oh, try this on for size. When we come to the Lord's Supper, think of yourself as Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Remember when David becomes king? Kings often had people sitting around their table. That was, of course, a special privilege. And oftentimes the kings would even take their defeated foes, sometimes toeless, but they would have them sitting at their table because they were now dependent upon the king. But Mephibosheth was the one that had been dropped as a baby, remember, and he was crippled. And David wanted to show his love and favor toward Jonathan, and so he puts Mephibosheth at his table. There is nothing in and of Mephibosheth that merits his place at the table. (laughs) It is all grace. It is all grace. Every one of us, as we gather around that table, we're Mephibosheths. At best. The last thing actually came to me in the context of this morning, and I almost stood up during the worship time and shared it. Okay, let me just say it bluntly. The meeting didn't start out well, right? Or to put it in John's words, somebody threw a curve. You know, have you ever noticed that when we gather for the Lord's Supper, things don't go perfectly? I know that there are churches that have everything orchestrated, everything is planned down to the second, and there's no mess. It's all nice and clean and neat. Okay? But we're a mess, folks. And wasn't it beautiful to have all the people stand up here and, the, and what they were saying is, my life was a mess. And Jesus made me clean. Isn't it interesting that the only pure thing in this meeting was sitting right here? And that's the bread without leaven. Because he is perfect, not us. And when we come to gather together, don't expect perfection. Don't expect that everything's going to go just as planned or even the stuff that, you know, we've got scheduled out. It may not. All that says to us is we are imperfect. And we come to celebrate the one who is perfect. 
That's just the way it is. You know, I was thinking about Jesus this morning. In Luke 22, he says, I have greatly desired to eat this meal with you. And the question came to my mind, why? Think about it. Think about it. Here's a betrayer. Here's Peter who's saying, oh, everybody else will bail out on you. Not me. Here are these guys arguing about who's the greatest. So what's so great about being there? Well, John says he loved them. It wasn't that they were so hot. They weren't. He loved them. And he came to give his perfection to solve their imperfection. That's what's great about it. Jesus saw this as his opportunity to serve. And he served by giving his perfect life, shedding his perfect blood for imperfect, crummy sinners to make them worthy of fellowship at his table. That's why it's so great. And that's why we should revel, as it were. We should every week be eager to come and sit at his table. And if we're not, then we're not as eager as he is. Because he says he greatly desires it. And all eternity is going to be, so to speak, a banquet table. This is just practice, rehearsals. And sometimes rehearsals go kind of poorly. But you know what? The one that's coming is perfect. Father, I pray for anyone here who may hear these things and they may be in a mental fog about what is this all about. Help them to understand this is about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, who was God and man, who was perfect and without sin, who fulfilled the prototype of Passover so that by his sacrifice of his body and his blood, unworthy sinners could become saints and could sit at your table. May they trust in him and find the fellowship that you offer. For those of us who are believers, help us to look upon this event, the Lord's Supper, for the greatness and the grace that you have offered to us in it. In his name we pray. Amen.